0: From New York City, welcome to the OpenFin Podcast. I'm Mozzie Dar.
1: And if you'd go back and take a look at that deck, you would really ask me that question. (laughs) What in the world was I thinking?
0: That's John McAvoy. He's been a serial entrepreneur on Wall Street, and now he's investing in fintech companies through an investment group he founded called Tribeca Early Stage Partners. He joins me on our first episode to talk about his investment approach, and he offers advice to seed stage entrepreneurs navigating these difficult times. John, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure.
0: John, it's so fitting to have you as our first guest today because you've been part of so many firsts in my career. You hired me at CreditX, the company you co-founded. You were the first investor in OpenFin. And you gave me my start in angel investing with Tribeca ESP. So we're going to get to all that in a bit but I want to start with the COVID survey you recently did of the Tribeca ESP investors, because I think the results are so interesting and relevant to fintech entrepreneurs out there. Now, the investors are all current and former Wall Street execs and entrepreneurs, correct?
1: That's right. I would say on average, there's about 30 to 35 years of experience for each member of our group. So, you know, collectively, we're probably somewhere 1,500 years of finance experience, if you want to add it up that way. Excellent. So the first question
0: in your survey was, have you contracted COVID? How many people in the survey responded yes to that question?
1: Yeah. So, and by the way, we have just over 50 people in the group, and we had just over 40 people respond to the questionnaire. And of the 40-odd who responded, there were only two people, one person who has, who had tested positive and had it, which happened to be me, and another person who suspected, highly suspected that he had it, but was not tested. So two out of 41 or 42 people tested positive.
0: Interesting, and so you were the confirmed case. Yeah, great luck, right? Well, it makes us even happier to have you uh, here. It sounds like you're. It sounds like you're feeling better.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I'm a hundred percent. Made it through uh, with flying colors. I'm happy to say. I feel
0: lucky about that. I assure you. Were you uh, one of those folks who was uh, asymptomatic, or did you have uh, real symptoms throughout?
1: No, I, I had the real deal. Unfortunately, but fortunately, it never really went sideways. And in my case, to me, that meant that I never had respiratory issues, you know, so there was never, I had a cough, but never shortness of breath or, you know, inability to breathe comfortably or anything like that. But I had fever, night sweats, cough, cold, shivers, total fatigue that, you know, just like moving, you know, mostly I was moving from the couch to the bed for five or six or seven days. And any of that movement was just challenging. It was such and effort. And then I also had what has become a telltale, which I didn't even realize at the time because this is now close to a month ago, I lost taste and smell. And the only, I didn't really think of it as being that weird because I had a just a little tiny bit of a stuffed up head cold, but very mild. And the only time I'd ever really had a bad bad case of loss of taste and smell was if I'd had a really bad head cold. And I didn't have that, but I lost taste and smell. And then a few days later, my wife says, you know, Hey, do you know, I just read that loss of taste and smell is one of the symptoms. I'm like, aha. Uh, so at that point I wasn't even, you know, hundred percent convinced I'd had it. But once I found that out, I was like, Oh man, I definitely have it. And sure enough, you know, the test was positive.
0: Wow. Well, we're thankful that you're feeling better. And I wanted to get to the rest of those survey results. And I, I was thinking, later on when I read the results and I, and I read that you were the confirmed case, that maybe you'd put the survey together while you were nursing your way through COVID. Is that is that accurate <laughs> or did you, did you do it before? Uh,
1: I couldn't do anything when I was nursing my way through COVID. It was a challenging week or week and a half. No, no, I did it after. Uh, I, I think I was pretty symptom-free when I did it. And it was really designed, to, you know, if you've seen from the survey, it was more around some things we kind of want to know about the investing appetite of the group, as well as people's views on the financial market, since we have so much collective experience. But I threw in the, the COVID questions, because I was curious, you know, our group is very New York centric, as you know. And I was curious, of course, if anybody else had tested positive, but I was also curious, you know, who'd actually been tested, which hardly anybody had been tested, like I think maybe I I was the only one who'd been tested, which is really a statement about how difficult it was to get a test and still is, at least in New York City.
0: So uh, I want to get to some of these survey results because I think they're fascinating for, and actually super important right now for fintech entrepreneurs to know. So one of the questions you asked, John, was whether the Tribeca ESP investors would be likely to invest in the current environment if they saw an exciting opportunity, and so what, what? What was the feedback to that question?
1: Yeah. So for your your listeners just want to point out that we we run basically a syndicate model. So people can opt in or opt out of deals. We do have capital calls, which makes us unique. So we can't call capital from the group, but generally we run a, a syndicate model. So on each opportunity that we show, people can say yes or no, and then we reserve the right to call capital. So we asked two questions on this point. One was prior to COVID, if we showed you an interesting opportunity on a scale of one to 10, how likely would you be to invest? And almost everybody was sort of eight or nine range, which, which is consistent with how we operate and the results we get that when we do show interesting investment opportunities, we usually get you know 30 to 40 people coming into a transaction without having to call capital. So pre-COVID, people were sort of eight or nine on a scale of one to 10 likelihood of investing. So then the follow-up question was, okay, if we showed you an opportunity now, how do you feel on the same scale of one to 10, how likely would you be to invest? And that average fell to just below six. So we went from, let's say, eight or nine to five to six. And also the standard deviation got much wider. There were a lot of people who were below five. There were some ones and twos. And you know, I don't think that it's necessarily a statement about the private markets as much as I feel it's a statement about the public markets. So this was early April, so now about two weeks ago that we did the survey. And obviously the public markets have come back a lot. So I do think we'd see a slightly different response, probably a little higher today. But at that point, people were clearly looking at their portfolios and seeing, you know, that they were down 25 to 35% in their portfolios. And and that really worries you and makes you pull back. And so even though I suspect that that was due to the public markets, I have talked to many people in our group since that time. And to to a T, everyone really is pointing to the public markets. And of course, I'm sure you're going to have some questions now about what I think that means for <laughs> startups. So let's go. Yeah. But
0: before we get to the startups, I also wanted to ask about the public markets, as you said. So yeah. the survey said that A number of folks don't believe we've seen the bottom yet. What were the numbers on that? And where do people expect the bottom to be?
1: Right. So again, this is about two weeks ago. I'd I'd be curious if people think we've seen a bottom now relative to then. But at that time, the market was decidedly off its lows. The lows were put in on March 23rd. The Dow at about 18,500. The S&P at about 2,200. And so the question was to our group, do you think we've seen the 2020 bottom on March 23rd? 73% of our group said no, which was really surprising to me. Anyway, so most people in the group by far felt at that point we hadn't seen the bottom. I'd be curious on the resurvey right now. I suspect more people would think we have put in the bottom, but I think as we all know, there's a lot of talk about this being a very prolonged painful process for the economy. So I suspect there's still a lot of people that that think the 2020 bottom has not been put in.
0: Super interesting. So let's rewind now back 10 years. My co-founder Chuck Dorr met up with you to tell you about this idea, OpenFIN, that he and I were working on and he came to you looking for advice on fundraising. At that point, we had a deck and that was basically it. As I understand how the conversation went, you offered to invest in the company during that conversation. So first of all, do I have that right? And, and my question to you is, what in the world were you thinking?
1: <laughs> and if you'd go back and take a look at that deck, you would really ask me that question. <laughs> what in the world was I thinking? Uh, you know, <laughs> like a lot of early decks, it was it was rough and raw, and I barely paid attention to it. In all honesty, yeah. So, so that is what happened. Chuck and I had a discussion, and uh, you know, when, when I heard that you and he were starting a company, you know, I was asking for the wire instructions before he even got to the next sentence, basically. And that was a very informed view that I had about you two and your knowledge, your domain, who you are for sure, and the way you operate, the level of integrity that you operate with. The commercial savvy that you both have, the technical skills that you both have, so quite a strong feeling on my part, having worked with you you know directly in the trenches at Creditex and had known you each probably about ten years at that point in time. So that's really been part of how we operate in many ways now at Tribeca ESP. Now, we don't ask for wire instructions on the first sentence anymore, <laughs> but it's a statement about people, right? I mean, that that's really what it is. And of course, we have a very in-depth investment process, which we may or may not talk about today, but it starts with people. And in this particular case, I knew you two so well and had such confidence in you that I, I honestly didn't really care what you were doing. I had confidence it would be a success and I was willing to write a check. And, and you guys also, I, I think, as, as you know, Mozzie, loyalty is important to me both ways. And, you know, you guys made me a lot of money. You know, you guys were certainly part and parcel and huge keys to the success of CreditX And you can't do it without a great team. And you guys were part of that team. So my view was that you guys had been really beneficial for me in so many ways that it was easy for me to give back into a company that you were starting with complete confidence.
0: That's super kind of you to say. And we were obviously really fortunate both to have worked at CreditX and also to get your your early support. I mean, for entrepreneurs in general, that, that first check, that first investor who believes in you is just everything and i want to talk about that because you've you've changed your your investment strategy at tribeca esp and you you really don't do seed investments anymore can you talk about that a little bit and 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 how your thinking has evolved on moving to a little bit later stage
1: sure yeah you know we started as uh, an angel group we were tribeca angels and as the model evolved over time We began to operate more like a venture group and move to later stage, which is why we changed our name to Tribeca Early Stage Partners. And part of that process and thinking was to move away from seed stage investing. And what we found, we were seeing a lot of seed stage companies in those early days. We still do. We don't invest in them anymore, but we were seeing a lot. We did a few, but what we found and as we learned over the first several years is you know seed stage investing, you need to make a lot of bets. You know, So the funnel has to be wide. We had the funnel then, we have the funnel now, so we're seeing a, a lot of deals we always do. And we had the funnel, but you need to make a lot more bets in seed stage. And what we found is two things. One, while we in general have tremendous risk appetite, we really did not have the risk appetite for seed stage investing. We needed more knowns. And in this relatively early stage investing process, there's always a ton of unknowns that the entrepreneurs can't even answer, as we know, at that stage. But the, the number of unknowns is so much greater at seed stage. You don't have clients yet. You might not have a product. It might be in beta. You probably don't have any revenue. And that led us to the kind of point number two, which is we didn't have the risk appetite for that type of investing, but also we just couldn't process that many deals. So we we couldn't get comfortable enough and we didn't have enough people to make the number of bets that were necessary to have a successful seed stage portfolio. So both on the risk side and the bandwidth side, we more or less naturally gravitated uh, a little further stage. So now we're kind of, let's call it late seed, pre-A to A investors. I think pre-A is a good spot with half a million to a million in revenue type numbers, preferably ARR, real revenue, real clients, real evidence that there are people out there that actually really care about what your company is doing. We recognize that things are still going to change along the way, of course, even at that stage, but you've proven a lot if you've got you know a good chunk of revenue and a, a good handful of clients.
0: Really interesting. So you know, speaking to an entrepreneur a couple of weeks ago. Who is in this this seed stage, sort of pre-revenue, or pre-enough revenue for them to be relevant to you, and they're thinking about you know how to how to navigate this environment. I think the the conventional wisdom is well, you know, don't don't bother trying to raise money, you know, in a, in an environment like this. Everyone's distracted. There's too much uncertainty, et cetera. But you know, obviously, for for anybody who's spent enough time working on their venture and is trying to think about how do I how do I navigate these waters and how do I get to the point where I can be relevant to you and Tribeca early stage partners? What would you advise them to do right now in in the period that we're in?
1: Yeah, well, certainly right now is incredibly challenging. My advice would probably be somewhat different if we were six weeks ago. But right now, you know, the problem is venture groups like ourselves are focused on their existing portfolio first and foremost. They may be wrapping up some deals that were in pipeline before the middle of March. And so as a seed stage company, at this point, approaching new investors, it's just incredibly difficult. They can't, we can't meet with you. You can't meet with your potential investors in person. And, you know, Zoom and Skype and Teams and whatever don't replace that personal interaction. They can't go into your office. They can't meet your team and vice versa. As the seed seed investor can't meet, if it's a venture firm, they can't meet the venture firm. So right now, super tough, I would say, and this is true for some of our existing companies as well, but assume you're not going to be able to raise anything in this environment from people you don't know. So work your existing network, people that you do know, Friends and family for sure, and bootstrap as just as long as you can, because external capital, at least chunky professional external capital, it's just highly highly unlikely to be coming your way until we get past this period.
0: That's super helpful advice, and I, I'm glad you validated what I told that entrepreneur because I, <laughs> I said something, <laughs> I said something uh, incredibly similar. I've, I've noticed that's why that you're same... on our
1: team. That's why <laughs>
0: I've, I've noticed that same. That same focus from from VCs is that, you know, first looking at their existing portfolio and, and making sure that, that those companies are, you know, in good shape or doing what they need to do, and then and then looking at deals that they were kind of close to wrapping up, but then you know, looking at public markets and all the other data out there to see how things are gonna progress over the next few weeks and months. So that is all very helpful context for entrepreneurs. I do want to take a step back before we wrap up and talk about your mo- most important investment, John, which is Nico.
1: <laughs> yep.
0: How How old is Nico?
1: He's 15, almost 16.
0: So Nico has been tutoring my sons Zand and Guy for 11 and 9 for the past few weeks. And he has been an Absolute godsend. He's an accomplished dancer. Does he get his dance moves from his dad? <laughs>
1: uh, well, he has a very specific style, which is hip hop. So no, he does not get it from me. Uh, I would certainly break something if I tried anything close to the things he can do.
0: Nice. Well, let's not do that. <laughs> so what career advice do you give to Nico or would you give to to people at Nico's age or, or even coming out of college? would you recommend to them a career on Wall Street?
1: Yeah, well, well, first, you know one thing by the time your your kid is fifteen or sixteen and certainly he's a sophomore in high school when he's in, in college, one thing i I already know is he's probably not going to pursue what interests me, but he's going to pursue what interests him, which I think is great. I mean, that, that is the way it should be. But if he asked, hey, you know, I'm thinking about, about a career on Wall Street, you know, which is where I started before I became an entrepreneur, I would say 100% yes, I would be fully supportive of that. And
0: beyond his passion, because obviously that that is where it starts. Is that, is a career on Wall Street something you think is a good place to invest one's time today?
1: Uh yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the thing about Wall Street, yeah, it's a it can be a very let's say non-gentle environment. It really can. But man, that teaches you a ton. It's hard work, it's a life skill. It teaches you about money, you know? I mean, money isn't the most important thing, of course, but your finances throughout your entire life and whether it's you talking, working on your own finances, or talking to your parents about their finances, to be able to understand the way the world of finance works is incredibly valuable for anything and everything, primarily. But I, I think it's really more about the learning experience that you get. And yeah, it can be challenging for sure. But that, that's one of the main reasons I would recommend a career on Wall Street, man, because you cut your teeth there. And if you are, you know, any semblance of successful. It's really a great launching pad for anything else you want to do in your life.
0: Terrific. Well, it's good to know I haven't wasted the last 22 years of my life.
1: (laughs) Definitely not.
0: Thanks for validating that. Mm -hmm. So before we go, it'd be nice to hear from you maybe about uh, a passion that is helping you escape the Mm -hmm. Corona madness. What is a thing that you spend a lot of time thinking about and, and investing yourself in?
1: Drinking, you'll be happy to know. what <laughs> uh, one, one of the questions on our survey was, has this environment, this quarantining, Increased the alcohol consumption in your household, <laughs> and about a third of the people said no, which I was shocked. But uh, I, geez, I, don't, they, I don't
0: believe that for a second.
1: Yeah, I know. Either I think I think they were bluffing. If it had been an anonymous survey, they probably would have uh, been more more <laughs> forthcoming on that one. So about two thirds said that they it has increased the alcohol consumption has increased, uh, which certainly is true in my case. But my passion is mezcal and a lot of people don't know that much about mezcal but it is kind of in the it's in the agave spirits category and it's made in Mexico and it's definitely different than tequila in fact tequila is a mezcal but it's something that that I've been involved with for probably 10 plus years I've written two books on mezcal I've got probably the largest private collection in the US of mezcal at somewhere 400 400 450 bottles or something like that so the mezcal collection it's hard to put a dent in mind because it's so large, but let's just say I've been doing a lot of research uh, in this quarantine environment. My wife has been fully
0: in- engaged,
1: uh, engaged on that score too. Excellent. Well, we, we, we all love Mezcal, particularly illegal
0: Mezcal if I might make a plug for that.
1: Yeah, I, it's a, it's a favorite of mine.
0: What what are you, what are your other favorites?
1: It really depends on really how much you want to spend, but other brands I love are, are brands like El Holgorio Real Monero. These are much more expensive bottles. These are you know one hundred to two hundred dollars bottles. You shouldn't be making cocktails with them. They are uh, made from a wide variety of different agaves, but they're they're rich and full of depth and flavor. And the more you sip them, the more things that come out. So some of th- those are smaller, more boutique brands than something like Illegal, which is. A f- Fabulous, fabulous Mescal for a, a forty dollar price point for their entry level. And you you're very happy to sip it or very happy to make cocktails with it. Some of these other ones, though, these hundred to two hundred dollar bottles, they're just next level. You know, they're really expensive, but the, the depth and character of those more expensive bottles really shines and and you can see the difference. So those types of things have been Strong on the consumption front in the McAvoy household in the last six weeks, for sure.
0: Terrific. Well, that is an excellent note to
1: wrap up on, John. Mazzi, as we're wrapping up here, can I ask you a question? Yeah, absolutely. So I know, you know, as CEO and founder of OpenFin, you've probably done a few podcasts, maybe more, a, a bunch of interviews, a lot of press, and you're always on the other side of the mic being asked the questions. How does it feel to be the one asking the questions and sitting on that side?
0: You know, it's a, it's a very interesting feeling because, you know, I guess I, I'm more nervous doing this right now than I am typically being interviewed myself. I think the reason that is, is that I've, you know, I've answered all the questions about OpenFin and, and I've gotten very comfortable with that. This is an entirely new experience for me. So I've been working hard to make sure I, I do a good job asking the questions and hosting. And that's made me more nervous through this process than I typically am being interviewed myself.
1: Well, you did a great job. You, you have a, uh, a backup skill. Should everything go horrible at OpenFin?
0: That's great. Thank you so much, John. We all need side hustles right now. So it's great to hear. <laughs> uh, and and uh, I really appreciate you joining us on the show today.
1: My pleasure. It's a lot of fun.
0: Thank you. That was our first interview. I want to thank John for joining us. And I want to thank you for listening. Join us next time as we speak with innovators and thought leaders in finance and technology.